Welcome to Extraterrestrial Reality. Uh, today we're going to have coverage of the NASA UAP here uh, meeting, public here, public meeting. And uh, what is it all about? Well, it's, uh, here's a press release. Uh, NASA is, is holding a public meeting at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Wednesday, May 31st, of its independent study on categorizing and evaluating data of unidentified anomalous phenomena. The agency will also host a media teleconference at the conclusion of the meeting. And it's going to air on NASA television, and I'm going to uh, share it here on this stream today. Uh, hopefully, everything goes all, goes well today, because last time I did a live stream on YouTube, uh, if anybody was watching, it, it, I had internet issues, and it kept on uh, cutting out on me, and it just completely became worthless, and I just had to uh, eliminate it. It was junk. So I don't think, usually I don't have any problems. I don't know why I did that day, but hopefully not today. Anyway, it says NASA defines UAP as observations of events in the sky that cannot be identified as aircraft or known natural phenomena from a scientific perspective. The focus of this public meeting is to hold final deliberations before the agency's independent study team publishes a report this summer outlining how to evaluate and study UAP by using data, technology, and the tools of science as a NASA priority, it is not a review or assessment of pre previous unidentifiable observations. The report will inform NASA on what possible data could be collected in the future to shed light on the nature and origin of UAP. So that's what we're looking forward to today. Uh, should be interesting, I, I, I must say. But, you know, I guess we're living in, a, in different times obviously uh to have something like this i mean there was a time where some uh, a nasa public meeting on ufos was unheard of and uh, i guess because of what the events that went down in 2017 with the leak of those uh videos with the uh the, those pentagon ufo videos ever since then things have changed i mean although people like me and a lot of people of the same mindset are always complaining about the government uh and the cover-up and all that stuff uh, what we are seeing here, I mean, it does seem, though, at times like it is a slow disclosure. Uh, I think it's going to be at the expense of the history of this, uh, you know, the, the history of uh, of the of what has uh, what with of UFOs in the past. I mean, I mean, are they ever going to tell the truth about Roswell? I doubt it. They're going to. I think what's happening here is that you know you have all these uh, you have you have Arrow, you have NASA here, uh, you have. I mean, you have these things going on, but really, are what are we, what are we going to get out of it? Well, sorry about that. I I have it on. I have the NASA stream here prepared, all ready to go, and uh, they're playing some music. I had it on mute, and I took it off mute for a second, and it blasted some music. But anyway, uh, yeah, I guess what what. It, this is a slow disclosure. Although people like me complain, people like out people, a lot of people that watch, listen to my podcast complain. Uh, they want disclosure and all that kind of stuff. But I guess this is all part of it, isn't it? Uh, when you really think about it, I mean, uh, they're going to basically forget about the history or the things that happened in the past, and and we're moving forward on a scientifically looking at this. And at some point, uh, 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 we could only assume in the future they're going to say, "Well, see, I guess it is extraterrestrial after all." Uh, are they ever going to admit to recovered crash retrievals and all that kind of stuff? Who knows? Only time will tell. Uh, I think they should just tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. But uh, I guess it's going to be interesting to see what happens today. 
Um, you know, I guess, you know, people who are already there, people who are already, uh, who already realize that there's an extraterrestrial presence here to us, it seems silly to go through all these moves, but there are people you have to remember out there in this world who, uh, not only, not only even more so than the people that follow debunkers, for instance, those people, I think people who follow debunkers, they, in their minds, they think, uh, they don't they want to be told that there's nothing to it i mean but at the same time i think that deep down they know there's something to it but they they they're, they're, and and they have fear about it but then there's another group of people that's even that has no they're completely oblivious to the to this reality or, or they don't even consider it and and when they look at people like in the ufo community they think we're a bunch of nuts okay looks like we're uh, we're going to get going here, so we'll turn up the sound and check it out. And as the designated federal official for NASA's unidentified anomalous phenomena independent study team, I'd like to call this meeting to order and introduce the panelists. <coughs> In the back row, we have Nadia Drake, Paula Bontempi, Federica Bianco, David Grinspoon, Carlin Tona, Josh Sameta, and Jennifer Buss. Well, in the front row, we have Walter Scott, Warren Randolph, Reggie Brothers, Shelley Wright, Scott Kelly, Anna Maria Berea, Mike Gold, and David Spurgle, who serves as chair of the team. I have a few opening remarks, but to begin, I'd like to start with the following. First, I'd like to pay tribute to the life of retired Air Force Master Sergeant Sam Sato, who's being laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery today. Following his active duty service, Sam served as the intelligence collection manager for the National Intelligence Manager for Aviation, where he played a critical role in UAP analysis. All of us at NASA offer our condolences to Sam's family, friends, and colleagues. Second, I'd like to take this opportunity to express my profound gratitude to our distinguished panel of experts for their unwavering commitment and dedication. It's disheartening to note that several of them have been subjected to online abuse due to their decision to participate on this panel. And NASA's security team is actively addressing this issue. We at NASA are acutely aware of the considerable public interest in UAP. However, it's critical to understand any form of harassment towards our panelists only serves to detract from the scientific process, which requires an environment of respect and openness. Now, every member of our team is a recognized authority in their respective field, and they have our unequivocal support. NASA stands in solidarity with them, advocating for a respectful discourse that befits their expertise and the significance of their work. Thanks. Now, in recent years, the subject of unidentified aerial phenomena, nowadays termed unidentified anomalous phenomena, or UAPs, has captured the attention of the public, the scientific community, and the government alike. And it's now our collective responsibility to investigate these occurrences with the rigorous scientific scrutiny that they deserve. NASA Administrator Senator Bill Nelson believes that understanding UAPs is vital for several reasons, which is why he directed this study. First and foremost, it provides an opportunity for us to expand our understanding of the world around us. As an organization dedicated to exploring the unknown, this work is in our DNA. Secondly, this study aims to enhance situational awareness. The presence of UAPs raises concerns 
about the safety of our skies. And it's this nation's obligation to determine whether these phenomena pose any potential risks to airspace safety. By understanding the nature of UAPs, we can ensure that our skies remain a safe space for all. In order to achieve these goals, it is crucial that we employ a scientific lens for our UAP work. It's precisely this rigorous, evidence-based approach that allows one to separate fact from fiction. This team is comprised of experts from various disciplines, which allows them to approach this work from multiple perspectives. And we have greatly benefited from that collective expertise. Now, why do we value a scientific approach? It's because science is built on evidence. It thrives on scrutiny. It demands reproducibility, and above all, objectivity. When we approach UAPs from a scientific perspective, we do not come in with an agenda. We come in needing a roadmap. Indeed, the primary objective of this incredible team of experts is not to go back and look at grainy footage of UAPs, but rather to give us a roadmap to guide us for future analysis. And this is the very scientific method that NASA holds true to its heart. Scientific research is intended to be publicly available and transparent, and NASA prides itself on making its data and images available to the public to learn and explore on their own. By holding public meetings like this one, we aim for open and honest dialogue with the public. We recognize that public interest in UAPs is high and that the demand for answers is strong. Conversations like this one are the first step to reducing the stigma surrounding UAP reporting. Moreover, transparency is essential for fostering trust between NASA, the public, and the scientific community. In order to do things right, we must work together pulling our resources, our knowledge, and our expertise. And by maintaining open channels of communication, we can facilitate collaboration, encourage the exchange of ideas, and ensure that our work is as robust as possible. Not only that, but our commitment to openness is in itself a reflection of NASA's commitment to scientific integrity. As an organization dedicated to the pursuit of knowledge, it is NASA's responsibility to be honest and forthright and to follow the science. And by being transparent in our work, we uphold our dedication to scientific excellence. The meeting today represents the first deliberative actions that the team has taken. And so it's important to keep in mind that they still have several months of work ahead of them. Their final report will be released this summer and we will publish it on our website. NASA believes that the study of unidentified anomalous phenomena represents an exciting step forward in our quest to uncover the mysteries of the world around us. By embracing a scientific lens, we ensure that our work is rigorous and reliable. And by valuing transparency and openness, we can foster trust and collaboration with the public. Simply put, this is why we do what we do. Now, before I introduce Nikki, there are a few administrative matters to attend to. Firstly, the Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena Independent Study Team has been established in accordance with the Federal Advisory Committee Act, known as FACO. Its parent committee is the Earth Science <laughs> Advisory Committees. As such, this group does not report to the government. It reports to the Earth Science Advisory Committee, who will debate the recommendations and formally transmit this team's report to the government. Next, our deliberative committee meetings, such as this one, are open to the public. 
And also, after this panel was convened, the National Defense Authorization Act, known as the NDAA, changed the A in UAP to be anomalous. Accordingly, this panel's remit was expanded to encompass not just aerial UAP. However, the majority of UAP sightings to date have been in the aerial domain. So it's fair to say that this panel's focus is on the aerial aspect of anomalous. Now, in compliance with the FACA federal statute, formal minutes have been taken throughout the meeting today. And these meetings and these minutes are for the public record. And hence, all presentations and discussions and comments by the committee members should be considered to be on the record. Each member of this UAP study team has been appointed because of their specific subject matter expertise as individuals, and hence each member is subject to federal ethics laws. This category of appointment is called Special Government Employees, or SGEs, for our non-government members, and our two federal employees serve as regular government employees, known as RGEs, and to the panel. All members on this committee should remember to recuse themselves if a topic comes up in which you have a potential conflict of interest between your financial interests, including those of your employer, and matters of discussion. And then finally, panel, if you have any ethics questions, please see me separately, and if needed, I'll put you in contact with a NASA ethics attorney. Thanks for bearing with me. I'd now like to turn to the amazing Dr. Nikki Fox, Associate Administrator for NASA's Science Mission Directorate. Over to you, Nikki. Thank you, Dan, and thank you to all the members of uh, NASA's UAP independent study team. Your selfless dedication to the pursuit of knowledge is just so commendable. And I want to thank you, the audience, for tuning in today to watch our first deliberative meeting of NASA's independent study team on evaluating and categorizing unidentified anomalous phenomena. Before I begin, though, I really do want to double down on Dan's words that it is really disheartening to hear of the harassment that our <coughs> panelists have faced online, all because they're studying this topic. NASA stands behind our panelists and we do not tolerate abuse. Harassment only leads to further stigmatization of the UAP field, significantly hindering the scientific progress and discouraging others to study this important subject matter. Your harassment also obstructs the public's right to knowledge. Our panelists are leading experts in the scientific, aeronautics, and data analytics communities. We are very lucky to have them on board to share their invaluable insights to inform NASA on what possible data could be collected in the future and how it can be collected to help us better understand the nature of UAP. The UAP independent study was commissioned to create a roadmap on how to use the tools of science to evaluate and categorize the nature of UAPs going forward. This roadmap, of course, will help the federal government obtain usable data to explain the nature of future UAPs. Transparency, openness, and scientific integrity are pinnacle to NASA's mission. They're at the forefront of this public meeting and have been throughout the team's seven months on this study. As Dan noted, this is a working meeting, and so the public will have the incredible opportunity to witness the process of science in action. At NASA, we lead the world in exploration and are committed to rigorous scientific inquiry. The nature of science is to better understand the unknown, and to do that, our scientists need data. 
Right now, there is very limited number of high quality observations and data curation of UAP. The existing data available from eyewitness reports are often muddled and cannot provide conclusive evidence that supports UAP recognition and analysis. Additionally, an object's background can complicate the data further and render it unusable due to conventional objects that can mimic or overshadow the phenomena completely, such as commercial aircraft, military equipment, the weather, and ionospheric phenomena like auroras. This lack of high-quality data make it impossible to draw scientific conclusions on the nature of UAP. Now, this team has used unclassified data from civilian government entities, commercial data, and data from other sources to inform uh, their recommendations. And as Dan noted, they will be published in a public report that comes out this summer. I want to emphasize that there is really great benefit to studying unclassified data rather than classified data for this study. First, unidentified anomalous phenomena sightings themselves are not classified. It's often the sensor platform that is classified. And you can kind of think of it, um, if a fighter jet took a picture of the Statue of Liberty, then that image would be classified, not because of the subject in the picture, but because of the sensors on the plane. Second, unclassified data make it possible for our team to communicate openly to advance our understanding of UAP, not only with each other, but across the scientific community and to the public. This ensures a clear and transparent pipeline of information that can be built upon through, the gener through generations to expand our understanding. This study relies on open data Everything we use at NASA is open and anyone can look at these records. So I invite you to visit our open data portal at data.nasa.gov to comb through our tens of thousands of data sets that are free and fully accessible to the public. Additionally, please check out data.gov slash open slash data for a great overview of where you can find the archives for our science and mission data sites. I am very, very much looking forward to hearing the deliberations put forth today from our distinguished panel of experts. Thank you so much for being here. Um, before you go, I just want to open up to questions. Let me start with a, a question on this op on the NASA data. Um, I think one of the th important things uh, that we'll be looking at with other data sets and events is the data is not very well calibrated. Can you say just a little bit about how NASA goes through calibrating some of its earth science data? Oh, yes. We very, very rigorous um, earth science. I mean, it, all of our data sets, not just earth <coughs> science, go through extremely rigorous ca uh, calibration. Um, we don't release anything until it's really perfect. I mean, we have quick look data that is marked as quick look data. Um, so, you know, you can use it to get preliminary um, findings, but wait for the, the really nicely cleaned up data. So uh, a lot of rigorous um, protocol in putting out our data to make sure it is perfect. Do we have any other questions from the panel? All right, thank uh, you thank so you. much. Hi, I'm David Spurgle. I'm the chair of the panel. And when I look at our chart, we have a lengthy chart, but the high level summary of it is how can NASA contribute 
to understanding the nature of UAPs. And our role here is not to resolve the nature of these events, but rather to give NASA guidance to provide a roadmap of how it can contribute in this, in this area. Uh, after my opening remarks, we'll hear from Sean Kirkpatrick from the AARO, and it's the AARO that's charged with leading the whole of government UAP effort. And they've already issued some preliminary reports on some of the events. NASA's role is to use its unique capabilities and its role as a civilian agency interacting with the scientific community in an open and transparent manner. And, you know, as Dr. Fox emphasized, the defense and intelligence agency data on UAP are often classified primarily because of how the data is collected, not because what's in the data. If a camera on an F-35 took a picture of a bird, it's classified. If a spy satellite takes an image of a balloon, and we've had in the news some balloons recently, that data is classified. And that's because of a desire to not reveal our technical capabilities to other nations. NASA, on the other hand, operates in a mode where it's collecting data in the open. And the NASA data is available on websites and is well characterized. And because of NASA being the civilian agency studying air and space, it has a special role to play. And I see our charge primarily as helping identify for NASA ways it could play that role and contribute to understanding. We've gone through a preliminary data collection stage. And to summarize some of the things that we've learned, the current data collection efforts regarding UAPs are unsystematic and fragmented across various agencies, often using instruments uncalibrated for scientific data collection. And if I think about the data that people have out there, it's in many ways what we'd like to think of as citizen science. But again, it is uncalibrated data, um, poorly characterized, not well curated. And we face, looking through this data, a significant background, a background of many of these events are commercial aircraft, civilian and military drones, weather and research balloons, military equipment, ionospheric phenomenon. We need to characterize how, when the date when the date is taken, when it sees events like this first. The current existing data and eyewitness reports alone are insufficient to provide conclusive evidence about the nature and origin of, of every UAP event. They're often uninformative due to lack of quality control and data curation. To understand UAP better, targeted data collection, thorough data curation, and robust analyses are needed. Such an approach will help to discern unexplained UAP sightings, but even then there's no guarantee that all sightings will be explained. Another challenge in this area is what we call stigma. There's a real stigma among people reporting events. And despite NASA's extensive efforts to reduce this stigma, the origin of the UAPs remain unclear, and we feel many events remain unreported. Commercial pilots, for example, are very reluctant to report anomalies. And one of our 
goals in having NASA play a role is to remove stigma and get high quality data. Um, in fact, if I were to summarize in one line what I feel we've learned, it's we need high quality data. And this is not some, as a research scientist whose work has been primarily focused in cosmology, I would say the lesson of my career has been, you want to address important questions, you need high quality data with well calibrated instruments. So the, let me now uh, introduce the agenda. We're going to hear from a number of experts who will be presenting up to lunch. We'll then break at 12 for lunch from 12 to 12.30. At 12.30, we'll resume and we'll have presentations by members of the panel on some preliminary ideas for discussion. And that will be a, a period of time for some open discussion by the panel. We will then have a Q&A session based on questions that have been sent in in advance uh, to the website, and we've curated those questions and grouped them together, and we'll be going through a lot of those questions, and then we'll summarize. And then over the subsequent uh, couple months, we'll work on putting together the report, and as Dan said, we're aiming to make a public report available, uh, we hope, by the end of July. So uh, now let me turn this over to Sean Kilpatrick. Hang on. We'll do a couple of Q and A's. Oh, we'll do some yeah. Q and A's for me. Yeah. Okay. From the panel. Any any questions on the panel? Mike. Thoughts? Yes. We'll get the mic. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I think Dr. Fox um, said was looking at the release of data. Very important for our study when it's high quality. And you have also commented that data are not always perfect when we're doing certain studies. I wonder if you could um, shed some light on the, you know, the difference between the application of certain data to certain scientific challenges. So, you know, when you look at your camera, your camera is often designed to take an image in the daytime and might not be optimized for nighttime imaging. Or if you take something that uh, astronomers are very familiar with, is we design our telescopes to work at night. And if the sun is not even, if you, you know, you would never take the Hubble telescope and point it at the sun. This would destroy its detectors. Not only that, if the telescope is pointing there, and the sun is over there, even though you're not looking at the sun, reflections off of the optics will produce what we call ghosting. And that kind of ghosting gets, produces some very strange images. And this, you know, one of the many things we need to worry about when we see unusual things taken from a camera is even if you're pointing the camera there, was the sun over there. Those kinds of anomalies degrade the quality of the data. And that's why it's very important to work with well-characterized instruments and to be, you know, using them in ways in which you, you understand what, what's going on. So I think if you look at 
you know, data taken from the James Webb telescope or from the Hubble or any of these things, and these are, you know, telescopes looking out in space, you'll see some really, you know, at first funny phenomenon. When a telescope points at a star that's bright, it saturates the detector and puts bleeding down the detector. And you'll see phenomenon like if there's a bright star off to the side of the, not, not, not even one you're looking at, you get this effects where light bounces off of dust in your telescope and produces a sort of diffuse image that has some really strange properties. So, you know, when you see something <coughs> unusual, the first thing you have to do is understand how that data was taken. And I think this is one of the challenges one faces when you have data taken by uncalibrated instruments years ago. It's very hard to know what's taken. It's very hard to draw conclusions. I think that's one of the challenges with uh, archival data. And uh, I think having dedicated, well-calibrated instruments, I think, will be important here as in any other area to understand what's going on. So, David, anomalies are so often the engine of discovery. Maybe you can say a quick word about high-risk, high-reward research in your field of cosmology and how you see that impacting the UAP study as well. So um, an area that comes to mind is um, fast radio bursts. And the uh, Shaw Prize was just announced yesterday and were awarded to the discovery of fast radio bursts. And these are these bursting signals that go off all over in space. And it's an interesting story because some of the bursts were real and are fascinating. And some of the bursts, there was a series of bursts observed by this observatory in Australia. And they had really strange structure. And people couldn't figure out what was going on. And then they started to notice a lot of them bunched together around lunchtime. And what had happened was the uh, people at the observatory would heat up their lunch in the microwave. And something they would do is they would open the door of the microwave oven before the uh, microwave stopped. This is bad for your microwave oven. <laughs> it wears it out. But not only that, it produced a burst of radio signal that was picked up by these sensitive detectors. So this, I think, is an interesting lesson. Some events end up being something unusual and conventional, but some events with these FRBs turn out to be these powerful explosions um, which are taking place at cosmological distances. Um, their nature is still not fully understood um, I think they're one of the really most fascinating objects we have, these bursts going out all over space. Um, they're interesting probes because they're kind of lighting up space between here and there. And they're a subject of very active research. And if I, you know, one looks at the history of these FRBs, at first they were discovered, not believed, then finally confirmed, and they were discovered by instruments that were very sensitive, but not optimized for this. 
And now what we're doing is we're optimizing instruments and optimizing software to look for these events. And it's often these surprises that turn out to be most interesting. And, you know, there are phenomena like sprites, which you can think of as upward going lightning, which were seen by commercial pilots and somewhat not believed, right? Because they were very strange. And, then, and it was really only when we were able to take very high speed imaging data, um, data taken often from places like space station, that we were able to see that the, uh, and learn about these um, fascinating ionospheric phenomena. So it's, uh, surprises are really interesting. I mean, I think this is one of the uh, fascinating things about the UAP phenomenon. If it's something that's anomalous, um, that makes it interesting and worthy of study. Other questions? Great. So now let me turn over to Sean. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Yeah, this is uh, David and pretty boring so far. It's a pleasure to be back. Good morning, everyone. Start by thanking NASA for convening today's UAP independent study public meeting and inviting me to continue to participate. NASA has been an invaluable partner to our team at Aero as we work to better understand and respond to identified <coughs> anomalous phenomena. We applaud NASA for commissioning its independent study team and for exploring what data and tools could be leveraged to shed greater light on UAP. Though NASA and Aero are taking on very different aspects of the UAP problem set, our efforts are very much complementary. We both are committed to the scientific method to a data-driven approach and the highest standards of scientific research integrity. While NASA is evaluating unclassified data sources for its study, Arrow's data set includes classified material with a focus on national security areas. However, all of this data collectively is critical to understanding the nature and origin of UAP. NASA brings unique capabilities, world-class scientists, and a wealth of academic and research linkages. NASA also has access to Earth sensing satellites, radiological sensors, tools for gravitational wave, geomagnetic wave detection, and means for analyzing open source and crowdsource data that may assist both Aero and NASA in their UAP efforts. We are very grateful for the partnership and welcome the opportunity 
to join with NASA to share our collective findings with the public as the U.S. government moves towards greater transparency on this issue. Last month, I testified before members of the Senate Armed Services Committee on emerging threats and capabilities and shared some of the progress made since Arrow's establishment in July 2022. I discussed Arrow's scientific and analytic approaches, its efforts to improve UAP data collection, standardize our reporting processes, leverage our partnerships, and meticulously review the U.S. government's UAP-related historical records. As I told the subcommittee then, the resolution of all UAP cases cannot be accomplished by DOD and the intelligence community alone. ERA's ultimate success will require partnerships with the interagency, industry, academia, the scientific community, and the public, which all bring their own resources, ideas, and expertise to the UAP challenge. We believe robust collaboration and peer review across a broad range of partners will promote greater objectivity and transparency in the study of UAP. Of course, NASA's UAP independent study team was convened very much in that spirit. I also emphasized to Congress that the only a very small percentage of UAP reports display signatures that could reasonably be described as anomalous. The majority of unidentified objects reported to Arrow and in our holdings demonstrate mundane characteristics of readily explainable sources. While a large number of cases in Arrow's holdings remain technically unresolved, this is primarily due to a lack of data associated with those cases. Very much along the lines of what David was just speaking about. Without sufficient data, we are unable to reach defendable conclusions that meet the high scientific standards we set for resolution. Meanwhile, for the few objects that do demonstrate potentially anomalous characteristics, Arrow is approaching these cases with the highest level of objectivity and analytic rigor. This includes physical testing and employing modeling and simulation to validate our analyses and the underlying theories, and then peer reviewing those results before reaching any conclusions. Arrow has shared these cases with the appropriately cleared NASA team members in order to discuss and help recommend potential scientific areas of study that NASA may want to take lead on. I'll underscore here, as I did before Congress, that Arrow's work will take time if we are committed to doing it right. Arrow is committed to the highest standards of scientific research integrity, as we know our partners at NASA are as well. Thanks again to NASA for hosting this public forum for UAP discussion and information exchange. And I'd like to turn to a brief presentation that includes some recently declassified footage and trends uh, for discussion. Next slide, please. So some of you probably saw a version of this at the open hearing uh, last month. This is an overall uh, uh, review of all of the analytic trends of all the cases that we have to date. And while the numbers may have changed a little bit, uh, the overall trends remain the same. Most of what we are seeing reported uh, by aircraft are at the altitudes where we fly aircraft. That should not be a surprise. You will note, however, that I have no space reports and I have no maritime reports. That is notable, even though we are looking across all of those domains. On the upper right, 
we have UAP morphologies. The vast majority of what has been reported and what we have data on, a little less than half now, are orbs round spheres. And in the bottom right, you will see in the really the, the heat map of the areas where we get most of our reporting. This is very much a collection biased map. This is where our sensors are, our military and our IC and some of the FAA data. In the middle, which is what we call our typical UAP characteristics for the vast majority of the cases that we see. One way of looking at that is a, is a we'll call it a target package. This is the thing we are out hunting for in most cases. Next slide, please. This is an example of one that I showed at the hearing recently. Uh, this is a spherical orb, metallic, in the Middle East, 2022, by an MQ-9. I will come back to the sensor question that David raised here in a moment. This is a typical example of the thing that we see most of. We see these all over the world, and we see these in, in making very interesting apparent maneuvers. This one in particular, however, I would point out, demonstrated no enigmatic technical capabilities and was no threat to airborne safety. While we are still looking at it, I don't have any more data other than that. And so being able to come to some conclusion is going to take time until we can get better resolved data on similar objects that we can then do a, a larger analysis on. Next slide, please. I'm going to let this play through. This is a newly released uh, video. You'll notice there are two dots moving back and forth. There is a plane at the bottom that's moving across the screen, and now there are three dots moving back and forth. The moving back and forth is from the sensor and the platform that's collecting it. This is a, a P3 on a training mission in the Western United States. They picked these up and they tried to intercept and was unable to intercept them. Apart from that motion, and you'll see a little bit of uh, defocusing from the sensor itself, uh, there is no other oddity about this, except for the fact that they couldn't catch them. The reason they couldn't catch them is because after further analysis, it was shown that those objects were actually much farther away from the P3 than they thought. And in fact, when we went even deeper, looked at air traffic control data, we were able to match those to aircraft on a major uh, flight corridor heading into a major airport for landing. This is the kind of thing that can um, spoof and or provide misperception of both very highly trained pilots as well as sensors, right? And this was reported as an odd grouping of three UAP. All right. That is not to say that the pilots didn't know what they were looking at, or they, they knew what they were looking at, but they weren't really sure. But it also is meant to say that when they're not sure, they're reporting it now. And that's what they're supposed to be doing. And then we have to go look at it. Next slide, please. That brings us to really what is Aero doing in the science and technical realm? So this is one of those areas that 
um, I'm going to expound a little bit more on than we did in the last uh, hearings. Uh, Arrow has a robust scientific plan that we are required to then provide to Congress here pretty soon. Um, one of the first things that we're doing is looking across all the existing sensor data against that typical UAP target that I gave you up at the very first slide. Mm -hmm. That goes beyond DOD and IC sensors. That's commercial, that's civil, that's and with partnership with NASA, with NASA sensors and NOAA sensors. Understanding if any of these earth sensing satellites, any of these airborne platforms, any of these ground radars, whether it's FAA or other, can actually see these things, given what we've got so far, is going to be an important first step to understanding which sensors are going to be relevant. From there, we, will, we are augmenting with dedicated sensors that we've purpose-built designed to detect, track, and characterize those particular objects. We will be then putting those out in very select areas for uh, surveillance purposes. Partnerships with academia, exploring the signatures to match to our data. So understanding if a thing is moving and if it is doing certain uh, anomalous activities, what are the signatures we would expect to see? How do we pull on that? And then from there, how do I tune my collection architecture to go after it? Statistical analytic techniques. We're working with a couple of universities on how do I do broader-based statistical analysis on unclassified and classified data so that I can apply those analytics to our holdings. And then AI and ML analytic techniques for searching out through the data, what are the, what are the objects, what are the targets that we're going after. We have partnerships with both DOD and DOE labs to explore our current state-of-the-art fundamental physics of UAP observations, both current and historical. In other words, if I have objects, those few that are doing some things that are anomalous, what is our current understanding of maneuverability, speed, uh, signature management, uh, propulsion, what are those underlying signatures that we would expect to see and how do I then pull on that? Our interagency and allied partnerships for calibration of our capabilities. This is exactly what David was pointing at. A vast majority of what we have reported to us are DOD sensors. DOD sensors are not scientific sensors. They are not intelligence community sensors. Believe it or not, intelligence community sensors are very close to scientific sensors. They are calibrated. They are high precision. They are everything you'd ever want to know about a thing. DOD sensors have one purpose. They are to identify an object that is known and put a weapon on it. That is what they're for, right, predominantly. So understanding how do you calibrate those against these known objects? How do I fly an F-35 against a weather balloon? at different speeds and different altitudes and different sun conditions and different lighting conditions and, and heating conditions. Those are all important measurements that need to be done. And we are on the in process of doing that right now. That table on the right is a very simplified version of our entire test matrix, which you would not be able to fit on three of these slides against all of our sensors across all of those phenomenologies. That will be useful in order to then train our operators, pilots, and sensors against the known objects. And then finally, our pattern of life analysis. 
This is essentially baselining what is normal. I have all these hotspot areas, but we only have hotspot areas because that's when the reports come in from the operators that are operating at that time. They don't operate all the time. So to have a 24-7 collection monitoring campaign in some of these areas for three months at a time is going to be necessary in order to measure out what is normal. Then I'll know what is not normal. Right? when we have additional things that come through those spaces. And that includes space and maritime. Next slide, please. Which brings me to some of my recommendations for the panel and their consideration and deliberation. Um, some of these we're going to be exploring with our, our new NASA embed, whom I'm happy to be welcoming on pretty, pretty soon, who's going to help us in our scientific plan. Um, Crowdsourcing, unclassified open source data. This is where you know some of the public can be helpful. You no, know, imagery from an iPhone is generally not helpful unless you are right up on whatever it is you're looking at. However, some of the ancillary data that your iPhone provides, from location to speed to you know other uh, phenomenologies and more than one of those, can be very helpful. Right. Large-scale ground-based scientific instrumentation. Um, evaluating how can I use some of these other instruments for detection. The FRB example was, was perfect, right? You have a bunch of large-scale uh, uh, instruments that were not designed for that, yet they picked them up because there was a microwave. Well, we have a, a surrogate target package of what we think these things are, at least from a what we've got reported to us that was in the front slide, understanding how can I evaluate that against all of these other instruments, and do any of them have a chance of picking anything up that would be helpful in tipping and cueing us to get other sensors on target? I think leading that evaluation of the scientific ground-based sensors would be useful. Also, the same thing for the Earth Sciences satellites, as we mentioned before. Intentional vice coincidental collection. So looking at how can I provide a tip and cue to both the ground and space-based um, scientific and academic sensor community to put additional sensors on a object when it is reported. I'm currently doing that with Arrow, the joint staff, uh, the commands for when they get tip and cue, right? So a pilot says something, they see something, they report it in, and we're going to turn on a whole bunch of new collection to go after it. I should be able to hand that same tip and cue to the scientific and academic community. So looking at how that works would be helpful. Peer reviewing um, advanced capabilities, the parameterization and the publication of that that have not yet been engineered. We understand a lot of fundamental physics. It is the scientific uh, community's responsibility to explore and document those fundamentals in peer reviewed scientific journals to match to data so that we can weed out all kinds of different hypotheses. Right? That's how science works. We need to make sure that we are doing that. I think leading that conversation would be very helpful from NASA's perspective. 
uh, archived scientific data. So we have a whole bunch of calibrated, large scale um, scientific data from all these different instrumentations around the world. Um, taking a look at how can you apply some maybe some AI ML uh, tools to search through that data for anomalous signatures that may correlate to things that we've got reporting on. That would be an interesting study. Uh, distributions of sightings. I think this is a low-hanging fruit one, right? So if we take a look at all of the distributions of sightings that are outside of my national security areas that I've got classified reporting for, and they generate the similar distribution map as we've got, and we put those two pieces together, now I have a holistic picture. And then, of course, our foreign partnerships, building a robust scientific community of interest, review data, capabilities, conduct analysis, expanding upon you know, our military and intelligence co collaborations across the world into the scientific and academic world. And with that, um, those were my thoughts. Uh, we've talked about some of these in the past. It would be uh, interesting to, to hear if there's any uh, further questions or deliberations on any of those points, and I'm happy to take any questions that you all have. Great. Uh, thank you, Dr. Kirkpatrick. And I also want to take this opportunity to thank you and the ARO for your openness uh, in providing this committee with insight and information about what you've learned so far, how we could work together. I think this is very much an area where it's going to be essential that NASA be a partner and be a good partner for ARO. And I think you're uh, really want to thank you for your role with this committee in helping to start to build that partnership. It's been my uh, pleasure. And let's, uh, Reggie. Yeah. Hey, thanks for the, thanks for the briefing. Um, question, uh, we talked a lot about data already. Let's talk about sensors for a second. So you mentioned that you work with labs, academia. Do you see a need to go beyond what you mentioned earlier? That is the type of sensors we have right now, which are based on national security threats and certain phenomenologies and frequency range and these kinds of things. Do you see a reason of going beyond that? Yep, and absolutely. So what, what are some of the challenges you see there, materials or what have you? So can we go back to the front slide, just the first slide where the target um, characterization is? Uh, so we've, we've purpose-built a couple of, of sensors to do search across that. Nope, down one. There you go. That's great. Um, to go down some of those characteristics to see if we can find them correlated to uh, pilot reporting. Right. Uh, some of those are um, initially, this is going to be, I'm going to say this is a bootstrap method, right? We're doing a broad spectrum search across very few indicators that we can point to that will allow, enable us to get a little bit more data, refine that narrow those uh, sensors and, and, and go from there. So we aren't just relying on the DOD and IC sensors that exist today, because frankly, they don't point to where we want them to point, right? I mean, I'll be frank with, with everyone. We, we can point the largest collection apparatus in the entire globe at any point we want. You just have to tell me where I want to point it. Second piece of that is a lot of what we have is, is around the continental United States. Most people, including uh, the government, don't like it when I point 
our entire collection apparatus to your backyard, right? It's, it's not allowed. We have some laws about that and we've got to figure out how to do this only in the areas that, that I can get high confidence there's going to be something there and high confidence I'm not going to break any laws doing it. Right? So there's a, there's a trade there. So some of these ground-based point detectors are going to be necessary for that to point up, to point out, to search. Coupled with, we're evaluating a number of sensor opportunities across uh, different organizations, academia, uh, industry, whatnot, that, that already exist or are being built for similar purposes or maybe other purposes that I might be able to recalibrate for this and see if those will have a chance of, of seeing that target, right? So that's where the modeling and SIM comes in. Can I, can I take that target, put it into your sensor and have a chance of seeing it? If I can, then I might want to use that. No, oh, wait. Who's next? Are you? Are you? Okay. Oh, go. Um, thanks, Sean. I have the questions you probably don't want, which are about numbers, um, unless I missed them during your presentation. Uh, you had said that only a very small percentage of your cases display signatures that could be anomalous and then followed that up with the few objects that do demonstrate potentially anomalous characteristics. What numbers are we talking about? How big that's, is your database? How many years time. was it collected over? Yeah. And uh, were those observations made? And then by few, what do you mean? Right. Now, that's a great question. Um, so this chart, as I mentioned, we've updated with our current uh, data holdings. At the time of my open hearing, we were at 650 cases-ish. We are now over 800. Um, we are putting together our uh, annual report, which will be due August 1 uh, to the Hill. And in it, and there will be an unclassified version as there always has been, uh, we will have those updated numbers at that time. We roughly get, I mean, you can do the math, you know, it depends anywhere from, from 50 to 100-ish new reports a month. Now, the reason we had such a big jump recently is because I got FAA's data integrated in finally. And so we ended up with like 100 and some odd new cases. Um, so there's there's reason why it's going to fluctuate. The numbers that I would say, so... Um, we're gonna we're gonna try to do a little more uh, uh, fidelity on some of the analytics when we report out, but the numbers I would say that we see are possibly really anomalous are less than single digit percentages of those that total database. So maybe two to five ish percent. I'll stand up because I'm, I'm on the other you. end of the room. Um, thanks, Sean, for your presentation and for the some of the video footage that we saw. Um, while we're all good scientists on this panel, I think that I look at it with an untrained eye of looking at that video. And so I see three spots moving and everything else in the background looks like it's stable. Can you talk a little bit more about either the sensor platform or what we're seeing that's stable in the background? Because they've been identified as airplanes um, and there's clear description of, of 
from other data sources that came in to help clarify that. Um, but when I look at this, what are all of the white spots in the background that we're seeing that are stable? So those are these, that's a star background. Pretty sure that's star background. Now, so you're looking at those planes were roughly mm, 30 to 40-ish miles away, if I remember correctly. And when you see that smaller plane that comes in at the bottom, uh, that one was much, much closer. It was like maybe six to 10 miles away, right? And so the jitter in the sensor is, is what you're looking at. Right. Okay. So the three spots, because they look like they're moving at about the same. Right. They are. Right. And and if they were flying together, but they're not, is what I'm hearing. They're this in is a, the sensor they're in a, moving. They're in a flight line. Right. So they're equally spaced in a flight line, and the sensor is jittering. Thank you. Yes. Appreciate that. Yes. He, wait, wait. wait. He's been, Walter's been yeah, waiting. Patients are waiting. Okay. If you go to your first slide, if you don't mind. Not the title slide, but the, the, the one trends that had the, slide, the trends. Please. Yeah. Um, it's the previous slide. There, there you, go. you go. Thank you. So I want to make sure I understand the slide. It says typically reported characteristics. And there are a bunch of things here, like, for example, size, altitude, speed. If it's being observed from a single sensor, use the example of like the airplanes that were coming in. And if you don't know how far away they are, how do you assess the size? Correct. How do you assess the speed? Um, this is what people would report, but it isn't necessarily what is real. the size of the object or the speed or any of the rest of it. Do I understand that correctly? Partially. Okay. So you, this, this is not all single sensor observations. Some of these are very much multi-sensor observations. Okay. And this is parameterized to cover the range of things for any given parameter, the range of, of what's possible and what is been observed okay and then on the next slide the one where you've got the or is the meatball moving across the the screen right, that one um so was there any look at sensor artifact data processing artifact um i mean the first thing that whenever i say anything that's anomalous i look at how was the data collected yeah so yes, these are these are. Um, so this is an EO sensor on an MQ-9, and we understand that very very well. So that is that is a real object, <clears throat> absolutely. Anna, Anna Marie. You mentioned that in uh, partnership with academia, you also use AI and other techniques for easing this possibly some of them uh, open source. Can you explain a little bit more what kind of AI ML techniques you're using? Um, are these about anomaly detection or are you using anything related to natural processing? Are you using anything related to computer vision? Right. So we're looking at uh, a number of different capabilities that span, I think, a lot of what you've just said. So we've got, uh, we haven't applied it yet. We are researching how we're going to apply it. So natural language processing for the reports from pilots. Absolutely. All right. 
uh, target recognition. So I can train a model to look for that thing and go back through all of our holdings and go, give me how many of these you have, right? Uh, and then try to figure out what those are. Um, so I have not put anything out there yet or have not looked at anything yet for um, active targeting in real time because I don't know exactly what I would train it. I'm just going to butt in, uh, cut in here for a second because, uh, I mean, actually, actually, as everyone has sees, this is as boring as all get out. Uh, too bad there wasn't somebody on that uh, panel there that stood that stood up and would stand up and say something like, "Hey, we're gonna show some pictures of some aliens on you know on on spacecraft like uh, Lou Elizondo talked about." Too bad they went on somebody like that in there to make this thing uh, uh, make it more exciting. Anyway, glad you recognize that. <laughs> we certainly do. I also want to commend uh, you noting the international partnerships. Uh, Spain just signed the Artemis Accords yesterday, increasing the membership to 25. I think that's a global partnership that you could leverage. Only 170 more countries to go, NASA, before everyone signed up. I, I just have two questions. One, relative to what Nadia was asking you about, the number of anomalous phenomena. What makes it anomalous in your view? What is the phenomenology where you're pulling those cases out and saying this is truly unexplained? And then my second question would be relative to the stigma. How damaging is that in your view? And what in particular do you think NASA can do to help remedy the situation? Those are great questions. I'm going to take the second one first because I know we're getting short on time. Um, the, the stigma has improved significantly over the years since the Navy first took this on um, some years ago. It is not gone. And in fact, I would argue the stigma exists inside um, the leadership of all of our, our buildings, right? Wherever that is. Um, uh, my team and I have also been subject to lots of harassment. Uh, especially coming out of my last hearing, uh, because people don't understand the scientific method and why it why we have to do the things we have to do, right? And because we can't just come out and say, you know, the greatest the greatest thing that could happen to me is I could come out and say, hey, I know where all these things are. Here you go, right? But I don't, right? And it's going to take us time to research all that. Um, people want answers now. And so they are, they're actually feeding the stigma by, by exhibiting that kind of behavior to all of us, right? That is, that is a bad thing. Where can NASA help? I made that recommendation on NASA should lead the scientific discourse. We need to elevate this conversation. Right? We need to have this conversation in an, in an open environment like this where we aren't going to get harassed because this is a hard problem. It is a hard target problem. We need to understand what is the things that are in all of our domains, space or air or undersea, and how do we make sense of that? Right. Um, your first question on what makes it anomalous to me, uh, we actually developed some definitions on all of these things. We gave it both to the White House and to Congress. I think we've got some of that into law now, but essentially anomalous is anything that is not readily understandable by the operator or the sensor. Right? So it is doing something weird, whether that's maneuvering 
against the wind at Mach 2 with no apparent propulsion, or it's um, going into the water, which we have we have shown is not the case. That is actually a sensor anomaly um, that we've now figured out, and we're going to be publishing all of that. Um, you know, those kinds of things make anomalous signature. Uh, we'll call it signature management, but it's things that are um, not readily understandable in the context of, hey, I've got a thing that's out in the light. It should reflect a certain amount of light. If it doesn't reflect that amount of light, something weird. I think we have time for one last question. Um, Sean, you recommended a foreign partnership with NASA. I'm curious, especially given your map, uh, have you, as ARA, partnered with international agencies and as there ways for reporting to your? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a great question. I want to expound on that just a little bit. Um, so I have just held uh, our first Five Eyes forum on this subject um, last week, I think it was, or earlier this week. I don't know. Dan was there. Uh, and we have, ex you know, we've, we've entered into discussions with our partners on data sharing. How do they do reporting? What kind of analysis can they help us with? What kind of calibration can they help us with? What can we help them with? And we're establishing all of that right now. Um, and they're going to end up, you know, sending their information and data to us uh, to feed into the process that we've laid out for how we're going to, to do all of this. Um, beyond that, I have not had either the time or the bandwidth to do, and that's why I would look to NASA to expand the scientific and, and uh, academic relationships that they have across all of our allies and partners on how can we bring them into the fold. That, that's where I think there's a, a lot of benefit to NASA taking lead on that. Great. Uh, thank you. But um, one just clarifications for people who don't know, what are the five eyes? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with the five eyes, those are uh, it's the UK, Canada, um, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. So those are the five partners. Terrific. So uh, thank okay. you very much. Thank you. That was really boring, I must say. Thank you, Sean Kirkpatrick, for putting me to sleep. So our next presentation is from Mike Free on, from the FAA, talking ab about uh, the FAA's role and what's learned. Now, now the FAA representative, maybe we'll get something good out I'd of like this, but I doubt it. I'd like to thank for the opportunity to, to come and give an overview of the FAA and, and uh, some data points around the FAA's mission the data the FAA provides to provide the framing of what are the surveillance systems that, that we can bring to bear or there, there's data around those sensors, as well as to frame the limitations of those. You know, Sean talked about some of the data points that, uh, that are used and being integrated. So hopefully this will give you an overview of the FAA's mission as well as, as, well as those data points. Uh, next slide, please. So the, the FAA's mission is, is quite large and complex. Uh, by, by a factor of two, we operate uh, more commercial aircraft than any other country. I think we're second only to Australia in total airspace, but largely because Australia has a very large oceanic volume that they're responsible for, for managing. So it is a very complex, very large uh, 
national airspace system. Uh, we have four, over 14,000 controllers, uh, 520 air traffic control towers, which are located at the, the, the highest density of, of airports. And I'll refer to those as towers in, in, in subsequent slides. We have 147 what we call terminal radar approach controls or TRACONs, and those are manned um, uh, control facilities at the, the high and medium density airports around the nation, as well as 21 air route traffic uh, control centers, which, are, which manage the control of, of air traffic in the in route environment. Uh, there's 19,000, over 19,000 airports, 5,000, over 5,000 of those are associated uh, public airports uh, with the remaining 14,000 plus uh, private airports. Next slide, please. So the FAA's mission is primarily around safe and efficient control of manned aircraft. That has been our, our historical mission and, and remains our primary mission. Uh, certainly, as we talk about uh, new entrants with UASs and advanced air mobility and some of those things, there will be an evolution of the FAA's mission to include safe operation of the NAS with those, those new entrants. But uh, the, the architecture and design of the NAS is, is geared around safe and efficient control of aircraft and manned aircraft. Uh, the, certainly the, the commercial aspect, the commercial flights are a primary focus of the agency. We certainly support uh, general aviation and uh, flights as well. Um, but again, our mission is around manned aircraft and safe and, and efficient operation of those. Um, the, uh, by the numbers, uh, over 16 million flights yearly, uh, 5,400 flights uh, at peak any given, uh, at the peak time of any given day, uh, 45,000 daily flights, uh, 25 million GA flight hours per year, uh, very large, very complex uh, operation that, uh, that we're responsible for managing. Uh, we certainly provide a, a significant contribution to, to that, for that service to, to the nation in the form of a uh, you know, product uh, toward a GDP. Next slide. So as, as we get into the discussion of surveillance services, I want to provide a little bit of framework around uh, the categorization of our surveillance services. And we primarily break those into two, two bodies. The cooperative surveillance, which, which is defined by an, a sensor that's avionics or equipment on board the aircraft that works in conjunction with ground-based sensors. The non-cooperative surveillance is independent. This is basically uh, the classic radar. RF energy is transmitted out, reflects off the target, and we receive that signal. And from that return, we can determine where that, 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 that aircraft is. Typically, these cooperative and non-cooperative sensors are co-located together, uh, one, the cooperative mounted on top of the non-cooperative radar. So from the purpose, from a data perspective, I think in, in this, this panel, in the study, I, I think that the cooperative sensors, those are neither unknown or anomalous. So for the purposes of this, this briefing or the rest of this briefing, I'm going to focus on the, the non-cooperative aspect. Next slide, please. So the, again, from the standpoint of the mission of the FAA around, it, again, is, is primarily around manned aircraft. And I think that ser serves as an important framework for the data points and the type of data that we can bring to bear you know, for this panel. 
So we break our, our systems and the design of the systems into different uh, types of systems. So we have short range radars, which are typically located at uh, the high and medium density airports. And those operate from a, a range, they have a detection range of between 40 and 60 miles and an altitude detection capability of about 24,000 feet. The long range radar systems have a detection range of two to 250 nautical miles with uh, altitude detection up to 100,000 feet. So that provides the basic uh, the framework for, for those. I will mention uh, the automatic dependent surveillance broadcast or ADSB. Uh, only from a context that that does serve as a primary data source and a preferred data source for the management of the airspace system, but it is a cooperative system. And for the purposes of the next slides, as I get into the discussion of the coverage and the type of detection uh, for those non-cooperative targets, uh, it is not considered as part of those. And also surface surveillance uh, is also something that we provide, but again, for the purpose of the study, I only include those for just a completeness perspective. The uh, one final point, when I talk about manned uh, aircraft and the primary mission for the drones and balloons and things of that nature, their basic premise is to operate in a not to interfere basis, that they are not to interfere with the manned operations. And that's, that's a, a fundamental aspect as we talk to the data and what we can and can detect with respect to those non-manned non -manned systems. Next slide, please. Realizing this is an eye chart, this I would wanted to provide just a, a, a graphical or pictorial depiction of where our sensors are located. Uh, the green, blue, and pink balloons, if you will, uh, represent our short range radars. Those are, are located at, at, uh, at airports. Those are where those are, are, are sighted. The, uh, the two reddish uh, balloons, they have letters in them, a four and a C. Those represent our long range radars, the Arcer fours and Carcer systems that are used in, in the context of both from an air traffic control perspective, as well as for a national defense and homeland security mission. And the, the um, perimeter, the uh, Arcer fours are located around the perimeter of the country, equally spaced, and the Carcer systems are located on the interior of, of the US. I will point out that this only depicts the CONUS. There are systems, uh, ATC, both short range and long range systems, Hawaii, Alaska, and uh, Caribbean. Uh, those are not depicted here. Um, I don't think they were necessary for the, uh, the, the purpose of understanding the surveillance. Um, and I will also point out that both for this slide and the subsequent coverage slide, we I do not talk to any classified DOD or DHJ systems that are in operation. Okay. Next slide, please. So what it is, what can the FAA detect and, and surveil? What can, can we not? Uh, this slide gives you uh, a by altitude slice of what it is that we can detect. So if you look at the the, the square that's labeled a thousand foot AGL that depicts by sensor for an aircraft that is a thousand feet in altitude what is the range at which we can detect that aircraft and so on as you, as you, you get higher in altitude 
uh, or further higher in altitude, you can detect it at further range. And that's basically a phenomenon of the curvature of the Earth and the line of sight aspect of these, these radar systems. So pretty good coverage across the, the US at 10,000 feet and above. Uh, this is a mathematical model based of a pure line of sight uh, as well as some geographical screening. As you can see in the western part of the U.S., there, are, there is screening in, in, due to the mountains and those sensors. Need to take a little bit of time and talk about the, the nature of the targets. These line of sight models uh, re represent uh, the, uh, an input of a target that is one square meter. So think of a, a sphere of one meter in diameter. That's the assumption that goes into these models. So if you think about that in the context of other forms of, of aircraft, a fourth generation F-15 or F-18 is in the pro proximity of about one square meter, perhaps a little bit larger. A large airliner is perhaps 100 square meters. A small UAS is perhaps uh, a, a, one, or a 0.01 square meter. So the range of these detections or the, or the size and the ability to detect these targets from a F, an F-15 large airliner, 100 times larger in size, a drone, 100 times smaller in size. So the detection uh, of and a surveillance capability really largely depends in part to the, the target that we're talking about and, and the ability to surveil that target. All right, next slide. So I do include this ADSB coverage slide just to give a context of from a cooperative perspective, uh, there is very good coverage uh, across the U.S. to 1,500 feet above ground level. So this provides a context of what, when we look at the data and start getting a discussion of what it is we can detect, this will certainly be uh, for those cooperative uh, aircraft that have ADSB, we could certainly uh, detect those to a pretty, a pretty low altitude across, across the U.S. All right, a couple of data points. I think um, I know Sean certainly talked about some of the data points, and I can provide a little bit of insight uh, from an FA perspective. Uh, drones, drones are, are a pretty significant challenge. There's 880,000 uh, registered drones in the U.S. Um, uh, small drones, I should say, uh, part one, uh, 107 drones. Um, Many tens of thousands of those are operate operated on a daily basis uh, for by commercial operators. It's not clear how many private drone operators are taking their their drone up for a, a quick flight. Um, but as I said earlier, those are regulated by uh, they're, they're regulated to operate below 400 feet in altitude. So again, it's the drone mm -hmm. aspect is for those small drones in particular, as, and as well as all of, all classes of drones there are regulatory restrictions to where they can and cannot fly, basically avoiding and not interfering with manned aircraft operations. Second data point, we talked about balloons. Uh, the Weather Service, we know on 190, or 92 weather stations that release balloons twice a day. Uh, it's at 6 a.m. and, and uh, uh, 0, 0, 100 Zulu and, and 1200 Zulu. Um, typically two hour duration, they fly up to 100,000 feet where the, the envelope bursts and, and then the, the payload uh, descends back back to earth. So certainly, um, you know, 100, at least 184 balloon flights daily uh, in the NAS, you know, not to consider universities and hobbyist balloons that, that, that may be launched, but those are typically small 
uh, small in size. And finally, uh, Sean did talk about UAPs and NFA data, a uh, couple of data points that we do report. There is a process by which air traffic controllers can report uh, UAP uh, sightings or, 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 or events. Uh, historically, those have been in the range of about three to five reports per month that have been reported. Uh, we did see an uptick of, of reports in August of 22 uh, that, that went up to about eight to 10 perhaps due to Starlink, Starlink launches. Uh, um, and finally, the, uh, with the, the Chinese weather uh, or the Chinese balloon incident in February, we did see a significant uptip, an uptick and there's like 68 uh, UAP uh, reports um, that, that, that started in February and we've seen a large number you know, subsequent to, then, to that. Uh, I think that's all I had. Um, any questions? Yeah, if you want to take the question? It's easy. Actually, you can call, choose the questioners. It's easier for, for your angle than for me. All right, Walter. Yeah, so two questions. Two questions about the uh, the, the radar data coverage. First one is: uh, Do you retain any of the data, or is it um, just cycle over as? There is a retention, long-term retention of data. Uh, I, I can't recall exactly how long retain that. There's certainly a requirement from a uh, retention from a. Um, like legal perspective like yeah, exa exactly um but i do know there is some periodicity in a measured in a term is of it, months is it retained in terms of like the raw radar or is some processed form of data that's retained i believe it's a processed form of data that okay. is what was displayed on the uh whether it's an, the, an indian route eram system yeah. or the, the star system and then the other question is for the radars um are they operated in any sort of a tasked mode or are they constant search mode? the current systems in our inventory just they're they're fixed face and they just rotate at either okay. 12 rpm or 5 rpm depending on whether it's an in route or a terminal surveillance okay, thanks. requirement all right next question yes forgive me if, uh, if you mentioned this earlier you said like i think you said three to five reports per month per month out of how many that is three to five reports per month for all of the controllers in all of the u.s so there's a, a process by which if they see something and they want to report that, they can go to report that to the, uh, the, the den, we call it, but uh, report, hey, I saw something, I don't know what it was. So that's three to five per month across the entire, you know, 14,000 controllers per month. So, you know, 45,000 operations any given day, 30 months, 30 days, however many days in a month, you know, it's a very small percentage. Uh, can you describe actually about this? How do you do you encourage uh, to report? Do you feel like the stigma on UAPs is impairing the reporting? Do you yeah, think the reporting I, is biased? I'm not aware of. Uh, of well, I'll answer it this way: um, the 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 process by which uh, UAP is reported is part of the air traffic controller order. So basically the air traffic controllers are allowed. It says, you know, if you see something, here's the process by which you, the procedure by which you would report it. Other than that, I'm, I'm not aware of any, any specific stigma or, or limitations. And I really probably not in a good position to, you know, to speak to that other than there is that process. And that is the process that we use to, and, the, and is what represents those numbers I talked to. And if I may have had a question prior to this one, how do you uh, decide the sites where you deploy? You saw the map and it has some 
very good coverage on the coastal areas. There were some areas of lack of coverage. Yeah. So if we went, if you go back, go back one slide from what's presented here, um, the what you'll see is in the eastern half of the U.S. There's a lot better coverage, but that's because there's a lot more population in the east, and therefore a lot more airports. And these systems are historically sited at the airports in support of those those airport operations. To the west, obviously, oops, to less less dense and uh, fewer systems. Now, the that's from um, an ASR, the short range radar perspective. The long range radars are pretty much equally spaced to provide in order to provide the maximum coverage from a homeland defense and security perspective, as well as with a higher altitude flights, the in route uh, cruise phase of air traffic control. Warren. Uh, Mike, first, thank you and the FAA for coming to, to share this information with us. Second, uh, can you speak to a little bit uh, of the filtering techniques that we use? So with respect to, I, I know Walter had a question about the raw data and process, but can you just talk a little bit about, we actually aren't trying to detect everything. You know, that's actually a very good question and a very good point with respect to what we can and cannot see. So um, there are, you know, the closer to the ground you point a, a radar, uh, certainly you can get lower elevations, but you also start to see the effects of trees and other ground-based clutter, as we call it, that starts to interfere. So we, we have great ability to detect a lot of things, but but from an FAA mission perspective, our desire is to find that sweet spot of seeing everything to as low an altitude as we can um, to maximize our mission around safe operations of manned aircraft. Now to pull that thread just a little bit further, you know, there's also limitations with respect to biologicals or, or insects and dust and things of this, this flavor that uh, most aircraft fly above a certain speed. So we typically will have uh, filtering settings on our systems to get rid of the stuff that really is leaves or insects or things of that nature so that we provide as clean a, a, a dis display for the controllers. So there are specific settings that we, we can can adjust and it's been learned over many years to perfect those what we call optimization of those kinds of filters to get rid of what is not a manned aircraft not an aircraft and and provide as clean a display for the controllers as we can yes um thank you thanks for the pr presentation um would it be kind of fun what you said Warren? um would it be possible to um to collect the raw data to say that because if if it would be possible to do some calibration after the fact that sean was mentioning for example you might be to capture other phenomenology is that possible well when you say raw data i think you'd have we'd have to talk a little bit about what is meant um so you know what from a, a, a technical perspective pure what we would call i and q data is huge huge you know gigabyte very 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 large um, volumes of data uh, that would probably be uh, cost prohibitive, and we certainly don't do that today. Um, the, the there are again, we do record data, but it is effectively the data that is has been through some form of these processings and these filterings. We do that uh, today, um, but it, it it certainly with enough time and money, we could certainly collect that data. And I think, it, but it would be a uh, we'd have to look at the challenge of of, in, of how we would go about modifying the systems or, or introducing new ways to collect that that raw data as you as you described. Certainly, it's feasible. It's possible. 
but it's not without technical challenge. One question on the yes, 184 balloon flights daily. Are those characterized, or they just you just know they do that, and then they just end up where they are? So under the balloon, I'll call it Part 101, the regulations for balloons, there's very specific requirements. So for National Weather Service, before they release those, they'll contact the local air traffic facility. They're going to say, here's what time I'm going to release it. And when they release it, they have tracking, and they provide that tracking uh, to uh, the air traffic control facility throughout the flight of, of, of you know, that particular balloon. There are commercial balloons that are also launched, but those most, for the most part, as I understand it, have, um, they actually transmit their GPS position in support of where they're flying so as to ensure they're not interfering with, with air traffic and to ensure the air traffic controllers are aware of where those, those balloons are operating. Yes, ma'am. So we've talked about reporting the three to five per month. Um, from air traffic control, but what about from the non-cooperative surveillance? Has there been anomalies from the sensors themselves? And if so, what is the process for that? I'd say the FAA mission is not around anomalies with the, the non-cooperative sensors themselves. So as we build an air traffic control picture, we, we have both the non-cooperative systems, which detects the target. We have a cooperative system that also detects a target, and we will tend to merge those those uh, targets together. And so, and so on a controller's display, they'll know, is this a, a non-cooperative only or a merged or combined target? So they, they know, you know, basically an increased level of confidence that on what it is they're seeing is in fact a real aircraft. So we don't dis make any real distinction uh, between a non-cooperative and a cooperative other than how they get combined and put on a controller's display. So I don't know if that answered your. Uh, so, so like a GA flight that doesn't, that is flying visual flight rules, uh, those will just be picked up by the if they and if they don't if they're not equipped with a, with a with a cooperative uh, avionics, those would just be picked up by the non-cooperative system that ha if they happen to surveil where that aircraft is is flying, and so that certainly will be put on the controller's display and they will be able to provide um, awareness. In fact, there's a, a flight following a procedure by which GA pilots can ask for, hey, I'm not, I'm not squawking, I don't have a, co a cooperative system, but please help me and just uh, through, via the radio, I'm gonna go on from here to here and, and providing awareness, uh, situational awareness, if the controller has the bandwidth to, to provide that data. One last question from mine. Yes. So I'm not a scientist, I'm a recovering attorney, and I love process. And a few questions there. If I'm a pilot, where do I find that process for reporting UAPs? Where is that articulated or captured? Second, when you mentioned that you're reporting these incidents, who are you reporting it to? And are those incidents pulling on the thread that Reggie started, are they being archived anywhere? Uh, I believe they are archived. Uh, they're reported to uh, the domestic network uh, event network. It's an FAA organization or, or function. Um, I don't. I I can't speak to whether for whether they would be say part of what uh, Sean would would include as part of his database. I presume so. Um, so I think that was the answer to the second question. Uh, what was the first question again? I'm sorry. Uh, where does the reporting process live? If I'm a pilot, I see a UAP, where do I go to find uh, that? I don't know the answer to that question. I, I said, I'm familiar with the reporting process from a controller perspective and the order that's, that's used to define how controllers do their job. I am not, I, I don't know the answer to the question from a pilot perspective. 
Great. So uh, thank you, Mike, for your presentation and uh, for the, all the help the FAA has given us as we've been learning more about the very impressive system that right. the FAA maintains. Uh, thank you. I know thank you for having what, me. You know, for me, one of the many takeaways from this is uh, feeling, you know, just a little bit safer every time I fly and thankful for you and your colleagues for what they do to make that possible. Thank you. And uh, we're now going to take a quick lunch. All right. Uh, I don't even know where to start. Uh, not really. I mean, for everyone on YouTube that suffered with me uh, through this, is uh, thank you for staying because if it wasn't for you guys, I, I, I would have fell asleep. I mean, I had a lot of fun here. People were making me laugh in the chat. Uh, I guess we have to cover it, though, right? I mean, what are we going to do? I mean, we have to. I mean, NASA's talking about UFOs. Really, did they talk about it? Not really, no. Uh, and, but I think the only interesting thing, the, the funniest thing that came out of this whole thing was Arrow's director, Sean Kirkpatrick, blaming uh, people in the uh, UFO community uh, for creating stigma because they were upset after his Senate hearing uh, testimony because, you know, he basically said that the uh, there's no evidence whatsoever of extraterrestrials. We know, and all of a lot of us out there know for all these uh, a long time that there's cover-ups and there's an extraterrestrial presence and all of that stuff. But he's blaming us now. He's blaming the UFO community for creating us the the stigma now that uh, maybe pilots don't want to come out because they're listen. They'll hear people like us talking out there, and I guess they think we're nuts. Right. So maybe so he's he's pointing the finger back at the UFO community saying, you know, hey, uh, maybe he doesn't want us to say anything. Maybe we're just supposed to sit there like these people sitting in their chairs with with, with smiles on their face and just nodding and ask, asking boring, dumb, bureaucratic, technical questions all day. Uh, I, this I didn't get much out of this. It was the only thing I got out of this uh, presentation today was the fun that I had in the chat. <laughs> chat i'm gonna actually i feel bad I'm, i was i'm planning on putting this on spotify uh for the for the podcast listeners and and i it's you know i i i don't know i didn't get much out of this it's it's boring talk i guess the only good thing about this is that you have a government uh, organization a government office nasa talking about ufos uh, do we learn anything did they tell us anything not really they're it's uh, there's really not much to really say about it. I mean, basically, uh, th this NASA, according to the press release, like I talked about before, it's, 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 uh, it's doing its own independent study on categorizing and trying to evaluate, evaluate unidentified, uh, anomalous phenomena. And, and this is stage one. Uh, I, I guess this is their, their first, uh, foray into the public with, this and it's it's this doesn't this isn't i mean it's a public meeting but it's boring i mean this is just a bore it was there was really nothing here for the public to really latch on to really i mean really what was said maybe the second half which is supposed to start at 12 30 here after they have their lunch break maybe we'll get something better out of that i doubt it based on what we just endured that was an endurance test but again, if you, <laughs> I was laughing, I'll tell you what, the, the one comment that really got me laughing was from uh, Lord Gray, uh, Gray Owl when he talked about your agonizer, please. And he, <laughs> that's, a, that's a line that Spock said in a Star Trek episode that had me cracking up. And, uh, you know, and then there was it, it, the, everybody else joining in. There's a lot of funny comments, and I, I do appreciate that. Uh, it, it made this tolerable. Uh, 
But anyway, yeah, I mean, what do we get out of this? Uh, nothing. But hey, again, there is a good thing to this, though. There is a bright side to this. The bright side is, is that there, you know, we have Arrow, we have NASA. There is a bright side to this. T- government offices, you know, NASA talking about UFOs in a public meeting. This is that's is un- something that was unheard of in the past. That is the good thing. At least there's a conversation now. Uh, they didn't talk about any. They didn't. I don't even think the word extraterrestrial or alien was mentioned once in this hearing. They're they're stay away from that. They they don't they want don't they do not want to even consider that in in these kind of uh, uh, meetings. But yeah, it was uh, it was boring and we didn't get much out of it. But there is a good side to this. I mean, again, this is I believe it's possibly part of the slow disclosure that's been ongoing. Uh, maybe it's a step forward. I mean, they're going to pre- like this is. They're, they're, they're studying it now. NASA studying studying it now. We have these independent scientific organizations out there studying UFOs now. That it, it's it's becoming less stigmatized, I think. And and uh, I guess that's the only really good thing about it. Did we really learn a lot about it? No. These these people, these speakers, put us to sleep. Sean Kirkpatrick offered nothing. Uh, that guy from the FAA offered nothing. And uh, there was a lot of glad handing and smiling and people acting like robots. I mean, there's not, this is, there's, there's like, when you watch something like this, there's no humanity there, right? It's just, it's like, yes. I mean, it's like, you're, you're looking at the automatons, you know, uh, walking around and, and acting like robots. I mean, it's just, you know, this, it's not human. I mean, talking a way where people, the rest of the world could understand, uh, it, it reminds me, I used to work at a newspaper, news, various newspapers, and you would have to sit through boring council meetings all the time. Oh, my God. That's what this reminds me of. Uh, anyway, I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to end this stream, and uh, I will be coming back uh, pretty shortly, within about 15 minutes or so, with the, the second stream, which will be part two of this. Uh, but I want to thank everyone for joining me today uh, on YouTube for the chat session. That made That made this bearable. Um, and until, uh, a few, a little bit from now, I'll see you later.